learn at home. So for example, if a young man in the home learns that it's okay to hit a woman or to slap a woman, he can oftentimes become an abuser himself. If a young man learns that it's okay or a young woman learns it's okay to be lazy in the home, they can often become unproductive, unproductive in their adulthood. If there are no responsibilities in the home, the child can grow up irresponsible, even lazy. Nothing can compete, and here's what research tells us, nothing can compete with the parental influence that you possess. That even when teenagers start growing horns, and uh, all my children are teenagers, I'm just shy, just a hair shy of an adult in my home now, which is really weird, that even when they hit this bar mitzvah, my youngest is 13, and that's a trip, right? Even when they act like they don't want as much to do with you, research shows they are the primary influence. And I've said this to you over and over again. It's like we can have counseling for everyone because I, I can't do it individually anymore. But I've said this over and over again. The number one reason grown men cry in counseling is when they start talking about their dads. So we know this has massive impact. Nothing can compete with your influence and your teaching in the home. So for example, social media, bad teacher. Facebook, I know it's a dinosaur, but Facebook for people my age, bad teacher. YouTube is a horrible teacher for my 13-year-old. Horrible teacher. I sometimes see the stuff she watches on YouTube and I think, what? literally, it's like something's wrong with your brain to even be attracted to these constructs that are happening, like these, these messages that are being sent. It's not even bad, it's just dumb. Are you tracking, parents? It's just, what are you watching? And then we evaluate the own things we watch on Netflix and we go, oh, well, maybe it's not much better. Snapchat, horrible teacher, horrible teacher. Reward centers in the brain telling kids what's right and wrong and what means something and what doesn't. Horrible teacher. Instagram, horrible teachers. Friends can often be bad teachers. Music can often be bad teachers. And so Satan knows something, what I just discussed, and I want to make sure we hear this before I go on. Satan knows too, like God, that the family unit is instrumental in everything else that happens. And so when we preach on marriage, I'll say things like, well, well Satan's really going to try to attack your marriage because it's the bedrock, it's the foundation. On top of that, God is going to go after the entire family, or God, but Satan's going to go after the entire family because when he goes after the entire family, he knows something. He knows that then the power of multiplication ensues, and he has your kids and their kids and their kids, and on and on and on it goes. This is a huge deal. And then you read things in the Old Testament that are bizarre, and you hear about how serious this command is. There's a consequence in the Old Testament for young men and young women who disobey they're earthly parents, and, and there's this just kind of consequence that comes with it. And the consequence is none other than death by stoning. And so because we're New Testament, we look at that, and we kind of tiptoe back and go, man, that's, that's bizarre. But understand the framework, because this wasn't just about a young man or a young woman. This was about the entire nation. And God knows as the family goes, the nation goes. So he took it very seriously. And, and I just, you know, as a scare tactic, want to read the Old Testament to teenagers right now in church as a parent with three. Um, it says this in Deuteronomy 21, 18. If a man has a stubborn or rebellious son, is anyone guilty in their primary years? I know you were all perfect. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline, will not listen to them, the father and the mother shall take a hold of him and bring him out to the leaders of the city gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our stubborn and rebellious son. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. So he must be kind of older to be doing those things. I doubt he's three years old as a drunkard. So we know he's probably a teenager or whatever. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from the midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. 
And so everything, it's like this social structure, this primitive social structure of when this happens, everyone's going to know. And they're going to say, do you know what happened to Johnny? Like all he did was back talk over and over again. They go, oh, I think he's dead, right? And so it's a big deal. Everyone takes notice. I'm not saying that's what we do. In fact, I am saying very clearly so no one gets a hold of this on social media. Don't do that, right? So there's their playing field, level playing field. But it goes on and on. And the Old Testament is so serious about respect and honor with parents. There's even funny, seemingly funny stories that are very gruesome. Uh, there's a guy named Elijah in the Old Testament in 2 Kings. It says he went up from Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, he's middle-aged, and some small boys came to the city and jeered at him. And that's maybe, you know, Old Testament trash talk. We don't know all the details of the jeering, but we know they said this. And so, is anyone uh, losing their hair? I'm just going to look at you because it's obvious, right? Just guys. This is what the Bible says. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Oh, I missed the funny part. Ready? Why did he turn around? And they jeered him, and they said to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Everyone look around someone's bald and say, amen, I'm just praying for you, right? I mean, this is what happens. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. So it was a curse in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears, that's the funniest part to me, came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Massive consequence for disobedience. And as someone who's now about to turn 43, it's like I can relate to this in ways that I never thought possible. But you see how serious this is because the Bible is serious about honor. The Hebrew word for honor means weight or importance. And in Ezekiel 22, it talks about honor to not be treated lightly, to make a big deal of your parents. So that's Old Testament. And we're about to answer these four questions, but here's New Testament. Jesus comes along, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I thought about it this week, and I heard someone else talk about it. Jesus comes along, and how many times did Jesus sin? One, two, three, anyone with zero, right? Final answer, Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfect. Jesus went to a cross, died in your place, rose from the death so you can have life. And then he has these earthly parents, and depending on your background, you might have been told that his mother was perfect. That's not what the Bible says. So he had parents that were great people, that loved God, but they had sin in their life because they were human. And he's raised by these parents, but then here's what's so interesting. Luke 2, verse 51 says, Jesus learned, he's perfect, I don't know how he learned this, but this is the paradox. Jesus learned to obey, and that's interesting. That's very interesting because Jesus had something they didn't have. Jesus had perfection. And so Jesus learns to obey sinners when he himself is perfect. And that's the only instance where you see anything like that regarding Jesus. And it shows us that even Jesus Christ himself, in his perfection, chooses to obey parents who are less than, way less than, here's Jesus, here's everyone else, than himself. So it's on the back of that reality that then Moses brings these Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, 12, this one simple statement that's our guiding text on the screen says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And so then if you talk to somebody that's been around in church for a while, they'll tell you this. Chuck said this to me. First thing, and I'm going to talk about Chuck a little bit today. He goes, now that's the only commandment with the promise. We'll get to that. That's true. But the first question is this. Why do we honor our parents? And if you're a teenager, we're going to start with you, and we're going to move into how we actually parent. But then the the response would be, number one, write it down. You're going to see it as a subheading. Why do we honor our parents? Well, biologically, if they weren't your parents, you wouldn't be here. And so regardless of what else they've done, they had you. 
right? So there's this position of honor by virtue of you would not exist without them. So in some way, even if things didn't go right, God had a plan to get you on planet Earth and to live this life where you could follow him. And it started, it started with the fact that he gave you a mom and a dad. Second thing is this, and this is more theological, rebellion towards your parents than is rebellion towards God. That God has a system, a family system that he creates, and regardless of imperfections, he gives us this system, and then when we do things that are sin, we don't only ultimately sin against everyone else, we then choose to sin against God himself, which then ups the ante. And so if we're young and we're saying, well, you don't know what my parents have done or you don't know how hard it is, I, I, I feel like it's been a while, but I kind of still know. I think I do know. And your parents probably know more than you think they know, even though you think they know very little. But rebellion towards them is rebellion towards God, right? Your request for obeying your parents is given against God's word and God's design. So then it becomes incredibly important. It becomes this thing where it's about you and Jesus. And then there's this blessing that the Bible talks about. So then another thing would be this, and write it down. If you're young and you're trying to obey and it's hard, there's a blessing attached to obedience. The reason why teenagers obey their parents is because you want God to be on your side. And I know little kids don't obey too, but I'm just kind of coming from a framework where you don't really know exactly what you're getting into until puberty. And uh, at puberty, parents just take a step back and go, I, I don't know this kid right now, but I'm sure I'm going to know them again soon, right? And so... There's a blessing attached to obeying when you don't feel like obeying. There's a, a blessing attached to honoring when you don't feel like honoring, even when they don't give you all the reasons to obey and all the reasons to honor. Because the reality is this. I do remember being younger. Parents can be incredibly annoying. Amen? Any teenager? Like, look at me. They can be annoying, right? And they think they know stuff that they don't maybe in your mind know. And uh, parents know stuff that they don't even tell you. Like, like parents know um, that we're not perfect, that we're moody, that we're you know, whatever, that we, we sin, that we, we don't always give the best example. And so resentment can build, and then we have to be the parent and, and tell you what to do, and sometimes we don't even follow our own advice, and it can just get incredibly tense. Uh, but what parents also know, and this is something that, you know, I'll just let the cat out of the bag. I'll, I'll tell you a secret about parenting if you're young. What parents also know is, like, there's sometimes where they do things, and they already know they messed up, but they have to be parent. And a humble parent repents, goes to the child. But there are some times where they know, even though you don't think they're acknowledging it, they know what they've done. And for example, there, there are things I've done in the last few years. There's things that I've said, uh, statements that I've made, or behavior that's been displayed. And I've caught myself in the moment having this huge thought in my brain as a counselor that I think I just had a moment where when they're 30 years old, they're going to remember that. Have you ever had that? And it's scary because you know you said something that your parents said or did something that your parent did, and then 30 years old, you still remember it. Like, I know some of the things that I've done are going to be future counseling bills for my kids. Because that's kind of how life works. And so there's a blessing attached to obedience, and there's a promise that you can live long. It sounds like Star Trek. You can live long and prosper. And, and I think that that's a promise that you need to see as a principle. I, I don't think that that means New Testament translation, that everyone who obeys their parents is going to live to a ripe old age of, you know, 100 plus. But I do think that means that if you do what your parents tell you to, assuming that they have your best interest in mind, that there's probably some things that are going to let your life live longer. Right, maybe it's parties that you don't go to or drugs that you don't take or, you know, getting in a car with someone who's done something and you're not a part of that or, you know, how you handle your sexuality, things like that. There, there are things that can extend your life through living a godly lifestyle. No question. Great principle. 
The second question is this, how do we honor our parents? And so now we're moving further. Because I still have a mom. My dad's gone, but I, I still have a mom. I, until 10 years ago, I had grandparents. And now as you're getting older, just maybe a time of reflection and, and just kind of full transparency, I hadn't talked to my mom in a little while, and you know what I did this week? You know, mom, what are you doing? <laughs> She's like, why are you calling me? I always call you. And I said, well, I'm preaching on Sunday, right? <laughs> How do we honor as full-grown men and full-grown women our parents? Proverbs 30:11 just makes it crystal clear. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. And so moms in church, pay attention, take some notes. When is the last time, either teenagers or as adults, or maybe someone in your 40s or even 50s, when is the last time you blessed your parents? When is the last time you focused on the good? Even though there's all sorts of wrong, you chose to focus on the right. That's how you honor them. Here's another thing that we do. You take care of them. And this is a New Testament principle, that you physically take care of your aging parents as a means of showing them that you love them and that they mean something to you. And the Bible doesn't have a social security plan, so people are the social security can plan. You have lots of kids because your kids are going to take care of you someday. It, it, you don't have the government backing. And so First Timothy, Paul says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her take care of them. Let the church not be burdened. So the church is in the social security plan so that it may care for those who are truly widows. I mean, the translation for us is when your parents need help, even financially, what, what do you do? I'm not saying that you have the resources to do everything, but you do something. I did a little research. I tell my kids now, I got this one who's about to be an adult, and I can't wait because for 18 years I've been funding this kid. I have been funding him fun shoes, clothes, food, fast food, more fast food, gas, a car, 14 years old, in a residential area, rolls a car. I had to get him a new car. It was a $500 car. Then I gave that car to Jed. I mean, it's, it's expensive. How, how many of you, I mean, are you awake? It's expensive. You, when you're raising teenagers, you never do more, look at me, and you feel less appreciated. Amen? Like you never do more and feel less appreciated. And so I did some Google research. Why do we take care of our parents? The Bible says to. And here's just a basic reality. If you come in this place, you're not a Christian. Why do you take care of your parents? Well, each kid is costing around $350,000. I've heard some research say $500,000. I don't know. Those are the spoiled ones, maybe. $350,000 from 0 to 18. I've got three kids. They've got a million-dollar noose around their neck. And I already told him, like, yeah, I don't know what your mom wants. Maybe she's cool with, you know, I don't, I don't know. But you're taking care of me. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to live with you. And I've got a million-dollar noose around your neck, and you're going to pay me back. <laughs> and you know who the luckiest people of all are? Their, their spouses, right? Because they get to live with a me-slash-added dementia. That's their blessing, right? And so we take care of them. We nurture our relationship with them. Jesus is going to a cross. This is how we honor them. Jesus is going to a cross. He's got a lot on his plate. He's sweating blood the night before. And he looks at his mom because his mom wasn't perfect, but his mom was a godly woman. He loves his mom. He looks at his mom and he looks at his disciple John, who's his best friend, and he makes this statement because he nurtures the relationship with the mom. He says, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. He takes care of her. He takes care of her physically. He takes care of her emotionally. 
You can see these things as drop downs if you want to. Maybe they're there, maybe they're not. Livestream might be taking a break. But you bless them, you take care of them, you honor them spiritually, and you live out the gospel with them. One of the most beautiful examples of this I have ever seen is Pastor Chuck, who's going to turn 60 soon. I was uh, hanging out and um, watched this all take place. For the last few years of his mom's life, she was living. She moved from Michigan, from her house in Michigan. She kind of would snowbird back and forth, but she would do it backwards. She would come here in the winter. It was kind of weird, like who would snowboard here? And she wanted to live with her son. And so Chuck and Shelly brought her into the house, and she was a funny lady. She would come to church because, you know, Chuck's a pastor, and she, she loved New Life. And then every week, she was like the connection card person, uh, maybe one or two more hymns, you know, type. And she, that was her generation. And so she had a certain paradigm for ministry that I'm sure if it wasn't for Chuck, she would have probably gone somewhere else. I don't know. But Bible-believing lived in Chuck's basement. Shelly took care of her. Chuck took care of her. I get a call at 5 o'clock in the morning a while back, and Shelly says, you got to get here. Chuck's a mess. Um, his mom just died. And so I go into the basement, and I, 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 this is personal, but I don't think you'll care if I share this. It's so awesome. He has her feet. He's just weeping at her feet. That's Pastor Chuck. He's just crying. He's telling his mom how much he loves her. He takes care of her till her last breath, and she went to meet Jesus just honored. And I got to be a part of that moment as well. But we honor them spiritually. That's how we honor them. Which now gets a little thicker because this isn't cookie cutter. Third question, track with me, live stream. Third question, how do we honor then dishonorable parents that don't fit the mold? Well, I had, I had to kind of read up on this, listen to people smarter than me. One of the things that we have to do, and so, so we're going to start with this idea, that yes, they're not perfect, but no one's perfect, okay? So they've hit that box, and that's all of us, but sometimes it's a little worse than others. But one of the things that we have to do in their less than perfective state is we have to give grace. And so here's how you know if you're not extending grace, and you can write this down, because if you're middle-aged like me, this becomes very applicable, how do you know if you're giving grace or not? If you expect far more from your parent than you expect from yourself, you're being stingy with your grace. If the standard is not equal, you have a grace deficit. And you're like, well, they drive me crazy. Well, you know what? One day, wake up call, your kids are going to probably think the same thing about you. And so you extend grace and you're assuming that things have happened that haven't gone well but there's a redemptive value to the relationship. Now, because I'm saying that, I'll also say this. There are extreme examples. And then the question is not, how do I extend grace? Because it's that bad. It then becomes, how do I forgive? Because I don't feel like I can. I mean, everything you've said, Rodney, is, is from a framework of something that's seemingly functional. But my story is at a whole nother level. And I know I can't extend grace because within that grace, I would have boundaries that would be damaging for me and my parents. Like they did things to me, my dad did things to me that you wouldn't even imagine. Well, now it's a game changer. And then the question becomes, how do you forgive? And I'll tell you this, write that down. What do you do with uh, parents that are at a different level? You give forgiveness and forgiveness is designed to guard your heart from bitterness. Forgiveness then becomes something that God gives to you for you to be healthy. And then here's the scary reality if you grew up in a lot of stuff. If you grew up at a different level of dysfunction, remember I told you this. 
that if you choose not to forgive your parents, you run a high risk of, look at me, becoming just like them. That's what's scary. If you choose to say, well, you know, I know God says to forgive, but I'm not going to go there, you run this high risk, and it's counterintuitive and it's scary, of becoming like the people that you can't stand. Because what happens when you forgive is you forgive those who wound you, and then what you do is you release the control that they have over you, and now you can have this vertical relationship that's healthy. And so when you have parents that maybe don't deserve it, just remember this. This is the gospel. You were forgiven when you did not deserve it. And when you're not forgiving, you're typically fixating. And when your eyes are fixated on the wrong thing, you have a tendency to become the thing that you're fixated on. That makes sense? I mean, who in here has been through trauma and then wants to repeat the cycle? No one. How many times does it happen? A lot. A lot. And so we forgive our parents. And we do so with a mindset that we don't expect to get what we're not willing to give. We do it with boundaries. If, if they are dangerous, specifically to our kids and their grandkids, we have to have boundaries. But in our heart, we know that we've brought them before the Lord and we've released them. And I, I can tell you specifically, I'm not trying to be dramatic, I've had to walk through some of that myself. And it's healing. Here's a, a military analogy that I ran by Chuck that I heard from someone else. Um, and he was a 20-year Marine. I, I don't know why this is like Chuck Day preaching. But uh, I said, uh, there's this thing I heard about. I want to run it by you because you actually were a Marine. And I'm, you know, obviously not. And, and I said, there's this thing that I've heard about in boot camp specifically or then while you're, a, you know, a, a lifer in the, in the Marine Corps or in the military where there's sometimes people telling you to do things that you can't stand those people, but you have to choose to do something. And what the term is called is this that you have to salute, maybe you've heard of this, you have to salute the uniform. And so what you do is you can't respect their character, but you can choose to respect the office that they hold. And so it's like your parents who, who don't deserve respect hold this office of a proverbial uniform where you're not necessarily able to look at their own character and their own nature and say, well, I'm going to respect that. But you can say they have an office given by God. They are my biological parents. And so I'm going to treat them in a way, regardless of how they treat me, regardless of how they've wounded me, I'm going to treat them in a way where I choose to respect the office that they hold. And maybe even for teenagers, that's a word because you're saying this stuff is messed up what's happening. You know, mom said she'd act like this, and she's gone over here, and dad said he'd never leave, and I haven't seen him. I mean, you have all sorts of reasons and baggage, and you say, I cannot respect what they've done, and I think that's okay because it's ungodly, but you can respect the office, and you can salute the uniform. That's how you honor someone who may not deserve honor in your life. Another thing you can do that's healing, this is the last one. We'll go to the last questions after this. Another thing you can do if you've been wounded is you can find healing power and going to the cross and crucifying your own flesh and living a new life in Christ. And then you can find healing power and giving an example that you didn't have. There's people that I know personally that have been through a lot and I watch the change that's taken place in their life. And I think to myself, they're not gonna really see how good God is until then they are parents themselves and they get to see how differently they have treated their children as opposed to the way they were treated. And it's gonna be healing. 
because you're going to appreciate every last ounce of what God's given you and the grace he's poured on to you and the marriage that he's designed for you and the kids that he has given you the ability to love. You're, you're going to love it more than people who have never had the trauma that you've experienced. And so you're going to show even your kids what it's like to salute the uniform as you honor your parents who were less than perfect. And you're going to show your parents what it's like to love kids in a way that they never loved you. And it's going to be healing for you. And so you honor the dishonorable through giving the example that you weren't given. Last question. Last question. If you're not a parent, statistically, most of you will be. How do you parent biblically with honor? All right, here's the first one. Your child, your child is a blessing according to the word of God. Psalm 127, children are a blessing from the Lord. They might not always feel like a blessing, and they might not always act like a blessing. But to have kids is a blessing. And so then the invert truth of that is to leave your kids is to rob yourself of the blessing. To leave your family is to rob yourself of the blessing. And, and maybe you carry this wound because that's what your parent did to you. You need to know they, they have robbed themselves from a blessing. I mean, it's a million-dollar investment in the Johnson house. It might even be more. I feel like I'm just hemorrhaging money. Thank you for continuing to tithe so I can draw a salary because I'm bleeding out, right? But it's a blessing in the process. My kids in their worst state are a blessing because you in your worst state are a blessing from God the Father. It's deeply theological. Kids are a blessing. Here, here's another thing. Just keep going on that principle. Like, I'm seeing that more now than ever. Teenagers, you give more, you get less. It is selfless. You don't understand selflessness until you've changed a diaper that my wife says I didn't change enough of, or you've raised a teenager who took from you and then said, oh, yeah, by the way, thanks, right? It's like, what do you mean? I just gave you my kidney, right? But these teenagers, it's, it's special. It's a blessing. I've got a 15-year-old son, my middle child, and we travel all around, and it's mid-level basketball, B basketball, JV tournaments, travel tournaments, and I try to make as much as possible because I can count on one hand the amount of times my did that, for, dad did that for me, and I played basketball constantly, and it was just goose egg. He didn't do that. And so I want to do that for my kids as much as possible within reason. And I've realized that of all the things that are annoying about all these tournaments and events and sports, there's this time I get with my middle child who's more introverted than the others, and the time that I get with him is the blessing. The time I get with him is windshield time, right? Jetty, it's like, you know, we dissect all the deep problems of life, him and I, driving on the road to Clark, to Watertown, to Sioux Falls, to Rapid, to wherever, and I get to the game, and it's not so impressive, you know, he'll, he'll dissect after the game. I had a handful of threes. This is what I did wrong. This is what I did right. And then he'll start talking to me about this. What am I going to do with my future? What does it look like to be a, a godly man? I mean, if you get to have these open crevices of conversations that if you don't have the windshield time, you don't get. And so it's a blessing for me. It's a blessing for me to sacrifice. It just looks different. My daughter, 13 years old, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. It's like this girl thought of me like I was on water. Seventh grade, I don't, it's like, I don't know. I think she kind of does, but it's different. I, I go to school Tuesday, and I think to myself, what better thing can I do than give her a stuffed animal 
seventh grader, 13 years old, and I give her a box of chocolates like Forrest Gump, and, uh, you know, I write her this nice letter, and then I call her out of class, and I have enough wisdom to go, I'm not going to throw this stuff out there in front of all of her classmates. I hide them. I give them to her. She says thank you. We go to the car. We go out to lunch. We get done with eating. She's so happy, and then she looks at me when I park, and she says, Dad, I'm not trying to be mean, but we're going to just leave this stuff in the car, <laughs> right? And it's like, man, it's a punch to the gut. How, I mean, like, this is the best gift ever. What 13-year-old doesn't want to be shamed in front of her peers for a doting, cheesing father who's balding? And she says that to me, and I go, man, things have changed, but there's a blessing in all of it because all of it's producing something. It's producing this legacy where I have sons and a daughter and then in the future, God willing, I mean, this is my full expectation. I have daughter-in-laws and a son-in-law and grandkids, and the quiver gets fuller, and it's a blessing from God because this is God's design. This is God's design. Here's, here's another thing to walk away with. How, do we, how are we honoring parents? A parent that honors. Your child is a blessing, and I already said this at the gate, but I want to clarify it. Your child is your responsibility. So dad, you're the spiritual leader of the home. Mom, single mom, you're owning that role. We have some amazing single moms at New Life. But we own it. Our kids don't go to school to get dished off. They're not the school's responsibility. Maybe they educate them, but they're not their moral, spiritual responsibility. The church, it's not the church's responsibility to tell your kids all about the Bible. You have to do that at home. It's not anyone's responsibility. It's not your coach's responsibility. It's only yours to raise a kid who doesn't just do the right things but has a new heart, not just outwardly compliant but inwardly transformed. You're not just trying to raise a moral child. You're trying to raise a child that understands that without Christ, they have nothing. Without Christ, they have nothing. And so there are responsibility. There are influence. We are number one influence in our child's life. The Bible says in the Old Testament, Joshua 24, we've all have it on coffee mugs or T-shirts in the 90s. It says this, and I remember going to Promise Keepers, and this was the anthem, and I was with my dad. Ironically, I was with my dad who was drunk, but he still took me to Promise Keepers. I had to drive to L.A. because he was intoxicated. I've never told that story publicly, but, I, but he took me that. I bawled like a baby, and then there was this song that came out of Joshua 24, and it was the bunch of like 60,000 men singing, as for me and my house. Do you remember it? We will serve the Lord. And, and I'm singing that song, and I got emotional when we sang it. But the idea is this. Family systems counseling will tell you that kind of everyone is equal on the playing field, depending on your paradigm for how you view counseling. And then there's the Bible that says this. No, it's not an equal playing field. And you see it in the Old Testament. It, it's the dad who's the head of the home spiritually. And then based on what's going on in your personal life, raising a, a, a child as a single mom, what a greater ministry do you have than that? Then you're the spiritual leader of your home. And the idea is this, when Joshua says it, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, was not a collective equilateral move. The kids weren't saying it with the parents. The parents were saying, no, this is how it is. This is how it is. And you have to fall in line with it, and we love you, and we know what's best for you. And the dad is just carrying that mantle saying, this is what it looks like in my home. This is what it looks like to serve God. This is what it looks like to be faithful to God. And the kids fall in line. And what I've found, that kids almost chronically fall in line because they follow the leader. There's this saying that, that's really kind of insulting to women. And uh, 
men will say it, you know, chatting and just kind of being misogynistic. They'll say, well, if you want to know what a woman's going to look like, ever heard that? Just look at their mother. <laughs> First of all, that's not always true. Second of all, this is why I say it. You know what's more true? What's more true, and we're not talking physical, if you want to know what a young man's going to look like, because men are so much monkey see, monkey do, just look at the father. Because I can tell you in the last 20 years, most of the young men that I've gotten to know almost always become as adults the spitting image of their fathers. Because that's how they learn. Uh, men that put their families first, they, they raise young men who almost chronically end up putting their family first. They might be goofballs in high school, but they tend to figure it out. Men that love their wives as Christ loved the church, that are romantic and thoughtful, tend to raise young men who then at some point reciprocate the process. Men that live by these values of my word is my word and my bond is my bond, they, they tend to raise young men that do the same thing. Men that know how to nurture relationships in the groups around them and become leaders of the local church and serve and sacrifice tend to raise young men who eventually do the same things because men are based on mentorship and how they operate. And so one of the ways that we're honorable parents is that we show our kids what to do. Men that are confident in the Lord, confident in their capacity, tend to raise confident young men. Men who play religious games either raise young men who play religious games or say, I'm not even going to go that far, I'm out. And so we show them to follow the leader in our honor. Write this one thought down. Forget everything else if you have to. Write this down. Most of what we pass down to our kids. Just kidding. Don't forget the other stuff. Most of what we pass down to our kids is caught, is caught and not taught. Most of those things that are desirable are caught and not taught. Most of those things that are destructive are caught and not taught. And so saying, do as I say, not as I do, super destructive. Follow the leader. And that's how we honor. I'm done, but I wrote something else down right before I started first service. So I'm going to share with you. I was thinking to myself, well, I feel like we can't just end quite like this. And so I want to leave you with something tangible. And I want to give you a little insight into how I see things as a pastor, as a dad, etc. Um, there, there was something, first off, I'll just say this, there's a goal to parenting. You want to be an honorable parent, there's a goal. The Bible defines the goal, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, but it starts with this idea, if you played sports. If you played sports, you probably had some coach that had veins popping out of his or her neck in a timeout and uh, pulled you aside in practice because there were things you were good at, hopefully, and things that you were bad at, realistically. And one of the things coaches would tell me is this, Rodney, know your role. You do this well, you stink at this. You do that well, you're not good at this. Don't get outside of your lane. Stay in your scope. And, and that's carried with me 43 years, even in the church. There are things I'm good at, there's things I'm terrible about, but my success has been stay in your lane. And when it comes to parenting, the goal of parenting is to know your role. And when you're dealing with teenagers, uh, this is something I'm just fully aware of. It, it's a marathon. It's not a race. And so I have this role. I have this objective. I have this future purpose that I'm ingraining in my children now. And it's not for the immediate gratification. And one of the things we do when we put our kids on the altar is we say, I don't, I don't want little Johnny or Billy or Sally or whatever. We don't want them to feel any pain. And the reality is this. Pain produces something. Pain's not necessarily bad. 
There's a goal in parenting that's far greater than your kids always having everything they want and emotionally always feeling like they, they always win. That, that's not going to produce the child that you necessarily want to produce. That's not a biblical goal. It's not always seek pleasure, avoid pain. The gospel has pain ingrained into it. And so I have this idea, that I have this role that God's given me where it's time limited, it's a marathon, and it's intentional, and this entire process is the practice, and I'm getting ready to send them off into the game of life. I've got like two months left with my oldest where he's legally an adult, and there's something that I want to ingrain in him now that as he's heard message after message after message after message from New Life, hopefully far beyond any words he's heard from a pulpit are things that he's watched me live out in my personal life. And what I want him to see is the goal of parenting is I want to do two things and write them down. This is what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to release because a 30-year-old in your basement is never good. You are trying to release that young man specifically. You are trying to release them so that they can replicate. That's success. It's not a lack of pain. It's not, you know, the inability to go through things. Life is hard. I want to release them. And for me, I'm not saying this is right. I want to release them early. I'm not trying to raise some kid where it's not the 350,000. It's like 700,000 because I couldn't let go. I want to release when I know they're ready or I think they're ready. And I want them to replicate. And then here's the last verse. That, that's my strategy. And I want to back it up with this. Proverbs says this. And I was just looking through this at about 8 a.m. this morning. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When I release them, here's how I see them replicating. They are going to do stupid stuff, right? One of the biggest challenges of being a pastor is that you have this weight on your own kids that's unhealthy. I know my kids are going to make some mistakes. But as they make those mistakes, like when my oldest is about to leave the nest, I want him to fear the Lord in a way when he replicates, this is how he replicates, where he has a knot in his stomach, not because I have control over his life, because there's nothing I can do anymore. I'm already crossing that bridge. There's nothing I can do. I want Joseph to have a knot in his stomach if he's not serving the Lord. I want them to have a pit in their stomach if there was somebody that doesn't love Jesus. When they're married, I want them to have a pit in their stomach if they're not loving their wife as Christ loved the church. I want them to have a pit in their stomach if they're not being pastors of their home, own home. I want to raise kids who struggle, but in the midst of their struggle, say this, as for me and my house, we are now going to serve the Lord because my objective is to release them and have them replicate what they've learned. Not on a head level, on a heart level. I want them to fear the Lord in a way that's healthy, not in a way where they're perfect, but when they start making mistakes, man, you guys know what that's like when you get saved and all of a sudden you start to feel that conviction? You know you're doing the wrong thing, but there's this knot in your stomach because you know at your heart level, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there's no amount of behavior modification that's ever going to produce that child that you want to produce. It has to be, has to be heart, heart transformation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your truth, your word. We come in here for different walks of life. We've had great upbringings. We've had rough upbringings. We've had good parental moments. We've had regrettable parental mistakes. But we lay everything down at the foot of the cross. We want to be redemptive. We want to forgive. And we want to raise these young people that we release 
And that even in the midst of their short-term failures, they replicate what they've been taught and more importantly, what they've caught. We pray this in your precious name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand up. Uh, if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you. And we'd love to give you a gift if you're new at Starting Point. And if you go here, uh, make sure that you support the ministry because we're all in this together. You can tithe on your way out or you can tithe online. But right now, we're going to sing one more song.